The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. From God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also to you. This is from Psalm 40, verse 3. He has put a new song in my heart. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Our great God, we have come here as your people to wait for you. Please turn and hear our cry. We ask that you would do a great work in this service, that you would be glorified. Convict us of our sin that we have trekked into your presence. Stir up us to zeal, to zealous faithfulness. Fill our hearts and our mouths with a new song that we can rightly praise our God. We ask that you would bring revival to our city. We pray that many will see it and fear, and so will trust in the Lord. And may it begin right here in your house, among your people. And we are bold to pray these things because we ask them in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And amen. amen. I'd like to tell you a little tale about friendship. So there once was a guy who, for his lunch, had a spinach salad, which he enjoyed very much. Unbeknownst to him, part of this spinach salad, which he enjoyed very much, got lodged in between his front teeth. And when he paid for the meal, the waitress didn't say anything about his spinach smile. Neither did his banker, nor his roommates on Main Street, nor anyone in that big group of friends. Finally, there was a guy, a freshman, who said to the man with a spinach smile, hey, so uh, you got something in your teeth. And of course, the man who used to have the spinach smile was a little embarrassed and a little hot at everyone who didn't say anything, but mainly he grew in appreciation for this new guy who could make a good friend. So what's the point of this little tale? And obviously it is check your teeth after you're done eating. But actually, more importantly, the meaning is that a mark of a real friendship is one who will speak the truth to you, even when it's awkward or offensive or even hurtful. King Solomon says it so much better in Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Listen to these words. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A friend is someone who will identify that spinach lodged in your teeth, but a Christian friend will call you out on that sin that is lodged in your attitude, in your words, in your actions. And one way to cultivate this kind of friendship is to invite your friends to inflict faithful wounds to you. So you let your roommate or your classmate or your husband or your mom know about your sin that needs to die. And then you present them with a friendship knife and ask them to cut away, to faithfully wound you when, you, when they see that sin, your laziness, your self-bragging, your gossip. And what will happen when you have friends armed and ready? Hopefully, you will become much more faithful because faithful wounds make faithful friends. 
of course, you can hear this and confront in the wrong way. You can inflict unfaithful wounds and just be mean and harsh and sharp. And this kind of mass knifing doesn't lead to godliness. I don't do that. But most Christians, our temptation is to say nothing, to hide our love, to flatter, to kiss, to deceive, to act not as a friend, but as an enemy. So the exhortation is to be a Christian friend. Hasn't Jesus Christ been a friend to you? Jesus has confronted your sin, faithfully cut you, and he has given grace. He has spurred you on to faithfulness. Be that kind of friend and surround yourselves with these Christ-like friends. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Our Father, we confess that we have not been faithful friends. Instead of doing the hard thing and speak the truth, we flatter, we tolerate, we keep our love hidden when our friends go down a dangerous road. We, we pretend that there is peace, peace, when we should make war on sin. Or when our friends have been faithful, we fail to hear their loving rebuke and act as if they are our enemy. Instead of humility or gratitude, we become brittle or offended or excused. This reveals that we care far more of our own ego and being right than your own glory and your righteousness. Father, we ask that you would give us the blessing of friends who love us so much to faithfully wound us. And may we be those friends to others. We know that if we regard sin in our own hearts and our own lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior. And amen. Please rise for the assurance of our Father's forgiveness. Proverbs 8.35 says, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Christian, if you have found Jesus, then you have found a true friend. For he has not merely confronted your sins and faithfully wounded you. But remember, Jesus has been wounded so that way you as an enemy of God could become a friend of God. He was wounded that your sins may be forgiven and you will be healed. So as a minister of this gospel, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, behold what manner of love you have bestowed on us, and that we should be called children of God. And therefore the world does not know us, because it does not know you, and is dead in its trespasses and sins. And so I ask now that you would raise the dead by the power of your word, by the power of the Holy Ghost, and by the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask all this in his name, and amen. You may be seated. Well, it is very good to be back with you all after what I trust was a pleasant uh, summer break. I know uh, both Ty and myself appreciated having a little preaching sabbatical, but we're back, and we're excited to be back, and we're ready to go this fall. Uh, a special welcome to you if you are um, an NSA freshman or a visiting family. Um, it's good to see you. I've met so many people. Yesterday, I you know, went down to Bootsers, and I told my wife, uh, the whole world was down there. There was, you know, people that I wanted to talk to, but I had to get home, and so I, I didn't even get to say hi. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, seeing you all uh, this week and being back here um, every week with you. Well, this morning we uh, picked back up in my year-long sermon series through 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, we're calling this sermon series The Love Chapter, and this morning we come to part V, part 5. I don't know why I chose Roman numerals, but I, I did. There you go. I, I don't really know what comes after. Is it VI comes after this? Yeah. That's, uh, well, I don't have time to rehash everything from those first four sermons. I think the last time I preached here was something like two or three months ago. Um, but um, if you miss those, I would encourage you to go online, listen to them so you can catch up, or if you just want to review. Um, but I am going to uh, do kind of a brief review of the ground that we've covered so far, just because, you know, we're dropping into the middle of a book, 
uh, the middle of a chapter even, and it's important that we don't just take texts out of context, that we remember uh, this is a letter written to a specific group of people. And it was not written to you, it was written to the Corinthians, but it is given for you, for your edification. So let me just do a little a recap of what we've done so far. So who was this love chapter originally written to? This will be the easiest question of the sermon. Who was this written to? Children? Huh? Corinthians. Wow, Ty. <laughs> Ty once thought like a child, but, you know. Yes, this book was written to the Corinthians. And do you know what kind of church or what kind of people they were? Well, if you read this book, you'll find out that the Corinthian church was a very gifted church. People were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Others had gifts of healing, words of knowledge, the ability to discern spirits. Some even had the gift of working miracles. <clears throat> but being gifted comes with its own challenges and temptations. Perhaps you've heard the saying that your biggest strength is your biggest weakness. Well, this was certainly true for the Corinthians. <clears throat> Their biggest strength, that of being spiritually gifted, led to this great weakness, this blind spot of sorts, of being quite proud and immature, and all the sins that result from that, like the division in the church. You remember, they were arguing over who was the best preacher. Was that Paul or Peter? Was you, were you following Apollos or Cephas? And then there was the people that were like, oh, we just follow Jesus. So uh, this is a, a gifted, proud, immature church at Corinth. And so Paul has to uh, give them some hard words. You could say uh, he was being a faithful friend, giving them some wounds. Paul has to actually tell them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says this, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And this is really a question that we should all ask ourselves. What do we have that we did not receive first from the Lord? And if we received it from him, why do we boast as if it was really all us? Have you ever thought about how funny it is that we boast about things that we had absolutely nothing to do with? Like who our parents were, or you know, our race, our ethnic heritage. There's a name for this in scripture, and it's called boasting in the flesh. This is what Jesus chastises the Pharisees for. They thought they were sons of Abraham. They were boasting in their bloodline. But Jesus says, no. Y'all are sons of the devil. Y'all are a bag of snakes. See, we boast about things we had nothing to do with. We boast about how maybe tall we are or short we are. Although maybe fewer people boast about that. We, bo we boast about um, how strong we are, how good looking we are, as if we are self-made. As if our beauty, our intellect, our athletic abilities were the result of all our hard work and dedication. As if we formed ourselves in our mother's womb, as if we were both artist and art, as if it were not we who, as if it were we who had made us and not someone else. We invert Psalm 100. And this was the Corinthians. The Corinthians talked as if they had created themselves, 
as if the church was their idea, as if salvation was of man and not of God, as if the Holy Spirit wasn't the one who gave them the very gifts they were bragging about and dividing over. And you can read this book, and we've noted already that it's easy to kind of look down at the Corinthian church. There was incest in the church. A man had his father's wife, and you think, wow, what kind of church would actually boast about that? Right? Paul says they're, they're boasting about this, that they were tolerating this. He says, no, you, you must purge the evil person from your midst. But, of course, we all have a little Corinth in our hearts. We can look around at Moscow, at our church, at our community, at this town that has been lavishly blessed by God. We are a gifted community. But it's easy to start thinking that we're the ones who deserve credit for this, right? Logos School, New St. Andrews. We have tapped, guys. We have, we, we have our own pub. <laughs> Christian owned, right? We're taking dominion in the city. It's really easy to forget all the people who have labored before us and that this whole thing is a gift of grace. This is not us and our uh, wisdom, right? MZ is a great blessing, right? But did you know that MZ would not exist except for the gift of God, right? Those were hardworking people. But careful, lest you forget that it was God who gave us the strength to gain wealth. It is God who gives you the ability to code, the ability to teach, the ability to raise godly offspring. This is all a gift of God, and we, uh, we hear this in Deuteronomy 8.18 when God says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So whatever hard work you put in, whatever brilliance you possess is only yours because God gave you that strength. And so Paul is trying to drive this home in the Corinthian church. He says, get off your high horse, Corinthians. Stop walking around with a swagger. He says, remember, it was not long ago that some of you were fornicators, porn heads, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, drunkards, revilers, and more. It was not very long ago that you were shut out from the kingdom of God. Do not forget from where you came, you weren't born a reformed Presbyterian. This is a point Paul wants us to remember. And if you go back to chapter 1, he actually starts his letter by saying this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, and he's like looking at you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, then he quotes Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul reminds the Corinthian church, you weren't anything special. And now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on this church, and you're gifted, you have all these gifts, well, they weren't given to you to puff yourself up. They weren't given to you to make yourself look better. 
This, this isn't a competition of who's most gifted. We're supposed to be knitted together like a body. The, the chapter before, chapter 13 and, and 12, he talks about we are like uh, members of a body, all working together. We all have a part to play, every one of us. And so remember, all of this is a gift of God. It comes from him. And yet Paul says, for all of those gifts, there is still a more excellent way. There's a better gift than the gift of miracles, than the gift of prophecy, than the gift of tongues and interpretation and healing. And he says it is this gift of love. And that's what 1 Corinthians is in there for. If you read the whole book through sometime, you'll think, why is this chapter in here? It's sandwiched in between all this discussion about gifts, prophecy, and tongues. Because he wants to emphasize this is the most important thing. And that's why I'm going so slowly through this chapter. That's why I'm taking half a verse uh, for each sermon. So, CCD. As you begin this new season, as summer turns to fall and school ramps up again and jobs change, do you want to know what you are called to? Do you want to know what kind of man or woman you are called to be? Do you want to know what it looks like to lose your life so that you might find it? To take up your cross and follow Jesus. Well, let's get practical. 1 Corinthians 13 is for you. So what have we learned about love so far? We already have learned that love is patient. Love is kind. Love is suffering for how long? A really long time. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is suffering for a really long time. And you'll notice that this means that love is not your feelings. Love is not your feelings. Love is not your feelings. Love is not how you feel. Love isn't how you feel. Love isn't how you feel. Patience, kindness, long-suffering is what we do, especially when we don't feel like it. Love is often doing the opposite of what we feel like doing in the moment. Love denies itself. We had a, a whole sermon on love does not envy. Love does not envy. It does not make sinful comparisons with others. Love is content. We also learn that love does not throw a parade for itself. Love doesn't t uh, blow up a float of itself and uh, ride down Main Street. It does not puff itself up. Love is not rude. It's humble. It's meek. And then lastly, we learn that love is not self-seeking. It does not insist on its own way. It actually seeks the good of other people, not just ourselves. So that's what we've covered so far. And this morning, we come to three other things about love from verses 5 and 6, and I believe uh, they're listed in your bulletin, and we'll take them one at a time. And the first is this, love is not easily provoked. What does it mean to be easily provoked? Uh, when I was younger, my family would take my two sisters and I on these awesome cross-country road trips. We'd hitch, uh, you know, five bikes to the back of the minivan and a pop-up trailer to it. I, I think my parents are crazy for doing this. I think I would not want to do that with three kids, but they did. And we drove from Silverdale, Washington to Jacksonville, Florida and back. And if you do the math, that means spending like 80 hours in the car with your two sisters, if you're me, or if you're them with your brother. 
and we didn't always get along. I mean, can anyone really be at peace with someone for 80 hours in a vehicle? It's tough. I mean, we even had a little tiny TV screen and an old school Nintendo in there, but still we could not keep the peace. And there was this game that we would play, and I don't know if it was me or if it was them, but we would basically just try to annoy one another. And what we would do is we'd play this game where you take your finger and you get like as close to the other person as you can without touching them. And then what do you say? I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And then sometimes you'd accidentally touch me. Why did we do that? Has anyone else done that? Am I the only one who's done? Okay. <laughs> Some other people have done this before. The reason why we would do this is because we wanted to get a rise out of the other person. We wanted the other person to, you know, slap the hand away and overreact. Why? So that mom and dad would look back there. And who would be the guilty party? Not you. But them, right? They responded in anger. And then they get a spanking and it's cheap entertainment. <clears throat> Now it, should, now, it should go without saying that love does not play the I'm not touching you game, right? Love doesn't do that. Love does not try to provoke people unnecessarily. But this verse says something more. It says that love is not easily provoked. And let me give you your rhyme for the day. When you are the one being poked, love is not provoked. Right? It's kind of silly, but perhaps you'll remember that. Love, when it's on the receiving end of the finger in the face, does not lose its temper. It doesn't snap. Right? How often have parents snapped at their kids out of just this irritability, out of this sense of anger? This is why Paul has to tell fathers, he says in Ephesians and Colossians, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. So love has, has to be both not easily provoked and it also must not provoke. It must not provoke in return. It does not return evil for evil. The ESV translates this verse as love is not irritable and the NIV as love is not easily angered. And if you were to, I think, put this verse in kind of modern meme language, it would be, love is not triggered. You, 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 that's the girl. I forget what, what she's doing with her face. But the, the triggered meme. right? Lo, love is not easily triggered. It's not itching to shoot. Love is not easily offended. And really, this is a virtue that you as Christians must learn and practice in this age of outrage. There are entire uh, channels on TV, podcasts, uh, media sources that are actually built and profit off of you being easily provoked. It seems, if you look at uh, the political uh, sphere, if you go on Twitter, my goodness, it's like a race to the bottom of who can accumulate the most offenses against them. This is what intersectionality ultimately boils down to. How many different ways can I be a victim? How many different ways can I avoid taking responsibility? How many ways can I be 
offended. And you think about this, why do people want to be offended? They do. People want to be angry. They want to be offended because it gives them a sense of control, a sense of power. They have this ability to then perhaps manipulate those that are their abusers. They claim victim status, and that gives them power right now in our culture. People want to be angry ultimately because we all want to be God. We all want to be judge, jury, and executioner. We all want to be the one who gives the laws and enforces the laws as we see fit. We all want to be the king of our little kingdom. This is our God complex that our culture has, and we all have it, right? This is called the indwelling sin, the flesh that remains. But Christians who have the Holy Spirit of love dwelling in them must not ever play this game because love is not easily provoked. You think, imagine if everyone did this. Imagine a world where people could speak the truth to one another, faithful wounds of a friend, without being stabbed in the back later, without people taking personal offense at everything, without twisting your words and trying to misunderstand you. Right? The, people go to seminary, it seems, to try to misunderstand what the Bible means. They go in, you know, a reasonable, faithful Christian and come out an idiot. I've read the commentaries, right? They think, you know, this letter was uh, not actually Paul. Or this is, you know, patriarchal Paul. And he actually gets a lot of things wrong, right? You can pay people a lot of money to go to school that'll make you stupid. That'll make you dumb as you read your Bible and say, oh, This must not mean what it means. I do not permit a woman to teach must mean I do permit a woman to teach. 1 Timothy 2. Oh, it got quiet. Am I provoking you? Well, you should not be easily provoked, people. We are Christians. Uh, When uh, Ellen and I were in uh, premarital counseling, and if any of you have done premarital counseling with Pastor Doug, um, I'm guessing he probably gave you the same exhortation he gave us, uh, but I really liked it. He told us uh, kind of the main exhortation was this. It was to love God and keep a sense of humor. Love God and be able to laugh at yourself. Love God and remember you're not God. Take God seriously, but you yourself remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. And the more I considered this virtue of love is not easily provoked, the more I wondered what is the opposite of this, if you were to state this positively. And I think one way of stating this positively would be to say that love has a good sense of humor. People who are easily offended, they don't really have any fun. (laughs) They don't really have the ability to laugh at themselves because They've taken themselves so seriously. They think they are God. And we all can we all know this when we come to the four-way stop and someone else that you clearly got there before them, but they they go in front of you. That's how you know you still have a God complex, because you have this righteous indignation that you were there first. And this person just kept on going and oh the things that are in your mind and in your heart. People who are easily provoked are quite boring 
dull, they don't make good friends, and they don't get to laugh because nothing is funny to them. And so if you want to be a light in this evil and perverse generation, you should, as a Christian, cultivate a sense of holy humor, a sense of where you really are in the cosmos. You are a tiny little thing. You're here for a very short time. And then glory. God, well, he's a much bigger deal than you. His glory is worth a lot more than yours. And when you have that sense of fear of God, reverence for him, it gives you the ability to laugh at yourself, to not take yourself so seriously. And it might even mean you have courage to speak the truth to people. Because when they hit back, you aren't easily provoked. James says, my beloved, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we can practice this when the toddler makes a mess or your coworker flakes on their responsibility or something just doesn't go your way. Practice love. Love is not easily provoked. It is not easily angered. The second thing we learn in verse 5 is that love thinks no evil, thinketh no evil in the King James. And let me just do a little bit of Greek here for you. The Greek word here for thinks no evil is lagizomai, lagizomai. And it means more than just not thinking evil thoughts. Paul uses this same verb in 2 Corinthians 5.19 when he says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, lagizomenos, their trespasses against them. So this word that means thinks no evil means a lot more than that. It means, one commentator translates it this way, love does not keep a reckoning up of evil. The ESV goes with love is not resentful. And the NIV actually, I think, uh, does a good job of catching the sense of this when it says love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And the point Paul is making here is that love is not stockpiling ammo for future arguments. Love does not have a long list of grievances ready to air at a moment's notice. And you know when you're doing this, don't you? You know when someone sins against you and you just put it kind of in your back pocket for a rainy day. When you need, when, when you've done something wrong and need to kind of like make it even. Right? Remember when you did that thing? Love doesn't do that. So let me talk a little bit about that drama. That drama that occurs when two people have conflict. When two people are fighting, or more, it is not hard to find sins on both sides. It's easy to point fingers because typically when someone sins against us, we sin back at them. Right? If we're honest, it's very rare that there's just one righteous party in a conflict, like all the way through. Maybe you were good, you didn't lose your temper, but then, man, you kind of lost it afterwards. Right? You're doing so good, and then, and then you lost it. And so sin begets sin. Someone hits us, and we hit back. Someone hurts us, and so we hurt them in return, and on and on it goes. And we call this the sin cycle, the sin cycle. Maybe you've experienced the, this before. Maybe you are in a conflict with someone right now. Well, what is the way out of that cycle of sin? 
that cycle of you having ammo and them having ammo, and it's just this war of who can, who can put the other person most in the wrong so that they'll feel guilty and then apologize. Right? You're in this game of chicken of who's going to humble themselves first. Who's going to own their sin first? Well, what love does is forgives, right? Love is not resentful. Love chooses to take that record of wrongs and nails it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Love treats other people's sins the way God has treated our sins. How? By not counting them against us. When Jesus was on the cross, he was not counting your sin against you. He was taking it upon himself. And aren't you called Christian because you're supposed to be like Christ and do the same thing as him? Isn't this like Christianity 101 to forgive the person that has sinned against you? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And I think, don't you want this? Don't you want to live at peace with everyone? Aren't you tired of the awkwardness the avoiding eye contact, the elephant in the room, that pit in your stomach. Well, God has given us a way to deal with the sin. And so uh, let me give you something very practical you can do. If you are in a conflict with someone right now, uh, your mom, a friend, a former friend, whatever it is, your duty is to love that person by thinking no evil. And this is what that looks like. You go to them. And you own 100% of whatever part you contributed to the conflict, okay? And maybe you think that they're the one with the problem, and it's 99% their sin. Well, you still go to them, and you own 100% of your 1%. Is this too much math for you guys? Right? You own all of the tiny thing in your eyes that, that you are guilty of. The person who has the most sins doesn't have to be the person to come to you and, and repent first. That's not in scripture anywhere. You won't find it. It's not biblical. But what if you took the initiative? You who were the lesser of the two sinners in the conflict. What if you did that? You know, it's rare that I've ever done that and the other person hasn't owned all of their sin too. Because when you humble yourself, it's easy for other people to humble themselves too. And this is what Christian love in a community like this that is so close-knit in which there are so many opportunities for us to sin against each other, right? You walk down Main Street, someone said hi, you didn't see them, and then they think, oh, this person must hate me, right? There's so many ways when you're living this close in proximity to one another, working together, raising your kids in the same school, going to school together. There's so many more opportunities for sin. And if we are going to be a church that is known for love, a community of love, it's going to require us to do this. And this is so hard, right? It's so hard to humble ourselves. But this is what love does. It keeps no record of wrongs. Lastly, number three, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. This is verse six. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Um, earlier this summer, I was uh, back in Seattle uh, visiting uh, the University of Washington. It's where I did my, my undergrad. And it was June, 
And apparently I found out when I went there that June is Gay Pride Month. And on the university's flagpole, this enormous thing, underneath the American flag is, what do you think? A big rainbow flag, right? And as uh, my wife and I, we walked through the city, you would see that it wasn't just there. It was above the entrance to countless businesses, restaurants, clothing stores, you name it, was this rainbow flag. And it made me think of a story in Scripture where people put something else above their door. Do you know what story I'm thinking of? Passover. The Exodus. Where blood is smeared on the doorposts above the entrance of the house so that God's judgment would pass over and that they would be safe. And it was this weird thing to walk through Seattle, this city that I lived in for four and a half years, and to see rainbow flags over every door, at every threshold, little stickers saying welcoming and affirming. This is a safe space for you. We have an entire city, and I'm guessing Seattle wasn't the only one, that is essentially marking themselves, asking, pleading for God's judgment to come upon them. They have perverted this symbol that God promised not to flood the earth again, right? They've taken this beautiful symbol, and they've perverted it to, to mean sodomy, to boast about sodomy. And this is what your head goes under as you walk into every store. Anyone who takes part in this parade of folly does not know love. Oh, they say it's all about love. They say love wins. But that's not what love is, people. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And there is only one objective truth. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. This is his world. And for all this, they preach tolerance and execute anyone who disagrees with them. And what has the church done? Well, we have waffled. Pastors fall all over themselves to not offend people when the person they should really be concerned about offending is God, the one they claim to speak for. And so the pulpit has become this place where pastors stroke your ears and they really are, are afraid of man and have no fear of God. They, they go to all this work to turn Scripture inside out and upside down to make it mean what it plainly means. How is it that we care more about the feelings of sinners than the glory of God? And we do this in the name of being winsome. Because we know better than God what people need to hear. But let me tell you something. There is no salvation from a gospel that flatters you. When you became a Christian, was it a flattering experience? Was it why you are so beautiful and kind and gifted and you could become a Christian too? Because you don't have any sins. Well, maybe some sins you lied when you were a little kid. No. When you really encounter the grace of God, it's typically a train wreck. When you encounter the holiness of God, it's woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. 
When people meet the living God, they fall on their face as one dead. But you walk into churches that claim to be gospel-centered, and what they do is apologize. We're really sorry that God says this. Just read the subtext of the sermons of reformed churches. Christian colleges and seminaries are shot through with this compromise. And while the world rejoices in iniquity, the church has failed to rejoice in the truth. Frankly, we're embarrassed that Genesis is in here. We're embarrassed that Leviticus is in here. We're embarrassed that Paul said some things that just don't quite sit right with us. That we need to just keep studying forever and never come to a conclusion about what he really means. This isn't love. It's not love to whitewash Scripture. To claim to be more Christ-like than Christ. To claim that Paul was just patriarchal and behind the times. Because this Christ that we have fashioned, that we claim to worship, is an idol that cannot save. An idol of the American imagination. And that's not love. That's not faithfulness to Scripture. People who claim they love gay people. They love trans people. They love the downtrodden. They love the alien. They are lying to you. Okay? They are lying to you. That is not love. Just open your Bible and read 1 Corinthians 13. This is not love to affirm people in their sin when that soul is going to go into perdition if they do not repent. And you're going to just stay silent when they claim to love people. When they call you hateful and offensive. When they play victim because you're attacking them. You're being judgmental. Do you really not love people enough to take that? To be called a hater? Do you really not love people enough? We don't. This is so hard, right? so hard to do this. When we start rejoicing in the truth, then we will be, like Jesus said, a city on a hill, a light that cannot be extinguished. Then maybe God would be pleased to give us the reformation and revival that we are praying for, that Pastor Doug in this session has prayed for for years, that perhaps you and I are a part of. What would a reformation look like? It would look like men and women not apologizing for what God says about them, for being faithful at the places that culture wants to silence you most, that you would be the loudest, that you would find that place and you would speak up, you would confront your roommate that is sleeping with her boyfriend. That you would confront that man, that roommate, who's living in sin. You've got to start with your own house. Start with you. Repent yourself first. And then let's go and let's get to work. Because if you look around, how many genders are there that they claim? I think the, the United Nations says there's like five. And that was some years ago. I don't know how many there are now. 
when people write the history books of this generation, what will they say? This was the age of sexual idiocy, where they denied the creator, and God gave them over to their own lusts, and they became like beasts, exchanging the glory of God for the glory of themselves. I'll close with this, and this will be a long conclusion. Loving people is very hard. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing. It costs Jesus his life. It was love that compelled him and love that got him killed. And this cannot be done without the Holy Spirit of love abiding in you. It is a gift of God to be able to love anyone. Remember context, gifts. When God gives you the gift of compassion, when he gives you the gift of humility, the, the gift of courage and boldness. He gives you himself. He gives you the spirit. He gives you his own presence. And this is how we can love one another. Jesus promised before he left to give the Holy Spirit. The Father promised to send the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does proceed from the Father and the Son. And so do not quench him. Paul tells the Galatians, keep in step with the Spirit. So I ask you, CCD, are you in step with the Spirit or have you lagged behind? Will you catch up? The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Will your Spirit catch up with the Spirit of God? Will you stay in lockstep with Him? I want to know where are the men who will walk by the Spirit and be valiant for the truth, vocal for the truth, where are the men who are Romans 1.16 unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to know where the women are who will stop gossiping and flattering and lying to other people's faces and instead have the law of kindness on their lips. I want to know where the saints are who will love and embrace the way God created the world. That he made man first and woman second. That man was not created for woman, but woman for the man. 1 Corinthians 11, 8-9. I want to know where those are who will love what the Bible teaches about headship, authority, and submission in marriage. And embrace the different roles we have in the world. Who will not just admit to believing these things, but who will actually rejoice in the truth more than rejoicing in its iniquity. I want to know where are the Titus two women who will, quote, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. You blaspheme when you disobey your husband. You blaspheme God. I want to know where are the older women who will teach this to the younger women the reason why I trashed Beth Moore in December. Remember, God damn you, Mary Heretics. The reason why is because you want to know the metric for a women's ministry? Does Beth Moore teach these things? No, she does not. This is not the tenor of her ministry. And I will not shut up about this, okay? I will not. I love you too much to let you read that trash to listen to that trash, to go to Bible studies where that trash is taught. I would not be loving you to let you do that. 
Don't blaspheme. I also want to know where the Titus 2 young men are who are sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Young men. John writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, young men, you are strong. I'm writing to you because you are strong and you've overcome the evil one. And we need you. You are the ones who are the future. So will you lead? Will you attach yourself to older, wiser men and learn from them? Will your strength that is your glory become wisdom? The glory of an old man is his wisdom. The glory of a young man is his strength. And you are on that path from strength. And as your strength, physical strength wanes, you are to be wise. And we need each other. Fathers, we need you. Grandfathers, we need you. We need to teach each other to rejoice in the truth. All right, I'll close, close for real with this. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Memorize that. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I put it to you now, church. Are you ashamed of God's word? Because if so, Jesus will be ashamed of you. And so let us repent together as a church, as a culture, as preachers of claiming to love people when we have really just loved ourselves. And let us plead with God to give us courage to imitate Jesus, who was not easily provoked. You continue to provoke him. But he is not easily provoked. He is patient. And he thought no evil, ever. He took your sins. He took them upon himself and was killed for them. And of course, Jesus did not rejoice in iniquity. He rejoiced in the truth. And that kind of offensive love cost Jesus his life. But he rose from the grave. And so will we if we look to him. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words. And I ask that you would give us soft hearts and ears to hear that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not rebel against you, that we would indeed not just submit, but love to submit to you, to love what you say in your word, and to never apologize for it. Give us courage to love people the way you have loved us in all of our offense. When we said, get away from me, you came close still. Make us to be a people that would do the same. Amen. You may be seated. When God delivers the Ten Commandments to his people in what chapter? Exodus 20. He describes himself saying, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, 
and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. God's jealousy is a function of his love. A man that is not jealous for his wife does not love his wife. A wife that is not jealous for her husband does not love her husband. A God that is not jealous for his people does not love his people. God's jealousy is a function of his love. In Numbers chapter 5, God prescribes a jealousy test for when a husband suspects his wife has been unfaithful. This ritual involves the woman drinking bitter water, taking a vow, and if she is guilty of adultery, a curse will come upon her. And it says, the curse will go into your stomach, make your belly swell, and your thigh rot. But if she is innocent, then the water will not harm her. It says she is clean, and she shall be free, and may conceive children. This meal before us is a jealousy test. In Corinth, there were those who had taken communion in an unworthy manner, and thus were sick, weak, and some had even died. This was God's curse for their sin. When we come to this table, we must take care that we are being faithful to our God, that we are not committing spiritual adultery. To eat this meal in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. However, if we have judged ourselves rightly and have confessed our sins, as you have, if we have discerned the body and acknowledge the unity we all have in Christ at this table, then we receive no curse and are instead, <coughs> excuse me, and are instead blessed. <coughs> blessed like a faithful wife. Blessed like a pregnant woman who is fruitful and bringing life into the world. Blessed like the bride of Christ who has come to taste the wedding feast. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I haven't preached for a couple months, and maybe it's showing. I had a lot to say. Sorry. Not sorry. The charge is this. Psalm 119 is probably the best example of rejoicing in the truth that Scripture gives. It is the longest chapter in the Bible as well. And in that sense, Psalm 119 is a love song. And I would like everyone here to read Psalm 119 this week. And to ask God to make that the melody of your life. We sing about what we love. And so let us learn to love the truth the way God has given us. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. And amen. <clears throat>